Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. How does it feel to be in the barbecue capital of China? Is China's high-speed rail really fast and comfortable? How much do young Chinese care about green development? These are the questions that uh, have brought a former executive director of the UN Environment Programme on a month-long visit to China. Eric Solheim had visited China before and is known to be a friend of the country in his native Europe despite much political pressure. Now, after a few years of COVID disruptions, he is among the first in the queue to revisit the country. What has he discovered this time. Any recommendations? Welcome to a special edition of The Point with me, Li Xin, coming to you from Beijing. I'm pleased to be joined by Eric Solheim here in the studio, who is now Vice President of the Green Belt and Road Coalition. Eric, it's a great pleasure to see you again. I'm so happy to be back in China, and it's so great that we can open borders and we can again meet yeah. after COVID. Yeah, and, and for me to have a guest here in the studio... <laughs> It's wonderful. Let's start with the high-speed train because that one is uh, really resonating with a lot of people on the social media. Um, you were traveling from Beijing to Zibo, which is a smaller town in eastern China, Shandong province, and you tweeted about it. You said it was um, wonderful to travel high-speed rail in China, that it was comfort and speed. You know, you showed the speed, which was over 300 kilometers, and that one drew 230K views, that mm -hmm. tweet, one picture, and almost 2,000 thumbs up. Why did you make a point to write about this, and why do you think this one got so much reception, positive reception? Because I think people have the same opinion that I have. There is no better way of traveling. You travel at high speed through these beautiful landscapes of China. You can see people doing their daily life out there in the villages, and you can see the trees and the, and the mountains. And you are completely comfortable mm -hmm. at 350 kilometers per hour. I mean, look, the Japanese invented high-speed rail. French also very good at it. But no one has done this as China, connecting this enormous continent. Mm -hmm. Basically, every city in China is now connected to high-speed rail. At the time of Olympics in 2008, there was not one kilometer of high-speed rail in China. Mm -hmm. Now it's 40,000. And it's so comfortable, so fast, but also so stable and nice. It's a beautiful way of traveling was, and seeing the world. But was it the first time that you took these trains? It was not the first time, but, but it's uh, such an uh, experience every time. I always want to go back, and unless it's very, very far, I always want to go by train mm. rather than by air. Mm. But w why do you think people were so curious about you know, this subject, that 230,000 views on this one picture and so many thumbs up? What does that say? What do you think? Mm. I think for foreigners, non-Chinese, it's an eye-opener. Not everyone is aware how far... China's common high-speed rail, uh, and I mean, some people said, I mean, isn't the Japanese were good at high-speed rail? And I said, yes, they invented it, but now China has taken over and is, is by far the number one high-speed rail engine in the world. And I think for the people of China, it's also a matter of pride. They're proud that China is showing the way to the world. 70% of all high-speed rails in the world are running on Chinese tracks. 
You also tweeted about uh, Zibo City in East China's Shandong province. Well, a little bit of a background here. This city was rather unknown, right? Mm -hmm. uh, just uh, a few months ago, but all of a sudden, it, it has become an internet phenomenon and a celebrity city, just because its its local way of eating barbecue mm -hmm. has. Um, gone viral on this Chinese social media. Did you try that, by the way? Did you have a try and, and tell us a bit? Because I haven't. <laughs> no, absolutely. It's absolutely wonderful. I mean, look, I had never heard about Cebu either. Uh -huh. Then I was invited by the government to Cebu, and then I told my Chinese friends I'm going to Cebu, and they said, oh, wow, you're going to Cebu? That's the most trendy place yes. in China right now. And the barbecue was fantastic. I mean, there were thousands upon thousands of young Chinese flocking to Cebu and barbecue Chinese style. This is not American type barbecue with enormous amounts of meat. This is Chinese style. Uh, you eat it on a skewer. Uh, you eat it somewhat Peking duck style. You wrap it in some uh, wrapping and you put some onions into it and some sauces and it tastes wonderful. And of course, it's also an opportunity to have a few beers or maybe a Mao Tai mm. uh, to celebrate. And I think people felt the joy COVID is passed, now we can celebrate, now we can meet together mm. and we can have this fantastic barbecue in Cebu. What kind of inspirations have you gotten from visiting that city? I mean, a lot of cities outside of that province are very jealous. They're watching what has Zipo done right. Just the fact that they can have this tourism sector enjoy this sudden fame. What could have possibly explained it and what are your inspirations from watching all of that? Tourism is very much underrated in the economy. Tourism is a fantastic job creator, creating many, many jobs, also maybe particular jobs for sometimes low-skilled people. So going to tourism is fantastic. But Cebu is not only doing that. They also have a huge energy valley in Cebu, trying to uh, recruit high-tech companies, energy companies, making new and better batteries for the world. So this combination of tourism and high-tech but for that to be successful, they need young, talented people. And we all know young, talented people may go to Shanghai, to Beijing, maybe to Qingdao, Jinan, and Shandong province, and not to a secondary city like Cebu. So they feel the pressure, the competition, and that's why they want to rebrand the city and attract young people. Um, you tweeted about what you just said, this old industrial city rebranding itself as a trendy high-tech city with a green energy valley. What do you mean by that? I mean, there are a lot of there's a lot of information packed in there. You mean, for instance, this green energy valley. What did you see there? What do you think the city is trying to re recreate from its old self? They are trying to make an area of the city where high-tech companies, green companies, people are inventing new batteries, going into electric uh, mobility, where they are working in the same area because then they will exchange views, uh, they will inspire each other, and we will get the dynamism of the green industries. But this is, of course, not in Cebu. I think most Chinese cities now have these kind of areas because they want to look into the future, and the future is green, and the future is high-tech, and they want to create the jobs and the market in these sectors, and then they need to, to recruit talented people because at the end it's about the brains and the hard work of people, and you need to recruit those people. Mm. So 
In terms of the brain, the, the ideas or the awareness about mm. green development, are there any noticeable <coughs> trends or changes or developments that you've witnessed this time in China by talking to government officials, you know, to people from various sectors? What do you think is going on? Do you think this idea of green development has taken root and is really um, forming the foundation of a future-oriented economy? President Xi Jinping made the famous speech when he said that lucid waters and lush mountains is like silver and gold. That time I was not the president. He was the party secretary of Shenzhen, and frankly not so many people who took notice because it was not a major event at the time. But now it can be seen as a complete kind of historical shift in, in China with the benefit of hindsight. At the time, well, Beijing was horribly polluted. I mean, we all know. I mean, if you walked around here, the air was like a soup, a very horrible soup. You could never see the sun or the, uh, or, or the, the sky. Well, now the sky is bright in Beijing. You can see the sun. I would happily go for a jogging because I can breathe the, the, the nice, uh, refreshing Still air. Still work to be done, but it's gotten much better. Uh, and, yes. and enormous progress in 15 years. And, of course, the reason is very important because this is very, very very good for the environment. That is also smart economic policy of China. Look, China has no Toyota. There is no brand in China which everyone in the world knows. Everyone in Norway, but everyone in Africa or Latin America, they all know Toyota. So what did China do? Well, surpass that level of development, go straight into the electrical vehicle phase, not start competing in the combustion engine. And now BYD, uh, is passing Tesla as the biggest producer of electric cars in the world. And this year, China will pass Japan as the number one exporter of electric uh, of cars in the world, but they're nearly all electric. And the 10 Chinese brands, Hongji, NIO, uh, Xpeng, they're all competing for this space. I mean, not all of them will be successful, but many of them will be. So China will create jobs and prosperity, but also go green. In that process, um, of course, it's a very um, prospective uh, industry. The, the idea, the direction is right. But often, when a lot of industries are, you know, going into the <coughs> same same uh, direction, um, there could be some potential mistakes that people can make. What are you seeing as some of the potential pitfalls that these industries should try to avoid? They should think long ahead. Look, China is not totally dominant in the producing of solar panels in the world. 82% of all solar panels in the world right. last year were made in China. Longi, I visited them in Xi'an, they are now the biggest solar company in the world. And they're producing enormous amount of solar panels. But of course, at some time, uh, these solar panels will have to be retired. Then we should prepare for recycling them into new products so we don't waste all these resources. And of course, the electric car industry, they're using a lot of cobalt, lithium, copper. Uh, and when the batteries at some time are retired, we should reuse this into new products. All this can be done. We just need to plan for a recycling industry based on the present industries. Hmm. Do you think the awareness is there? And for instance, when you talk to the local governments, are they asking the right questions about, you know, green development, about these waste disposal, about, uh, you know, the, the photovoltaic panels, for instance? Absolutely. I think, I mean, if you go 
20 years back in China, everything was of economic development. That was the one and only issue, bring everyone out of extreme poverty. But now focus is on high quality growth. Well, this is set by the center. This comes from the center and from the president himself to set this direction for China. But I think largely local authorities, city authorities, all the many provinces of China, they all understand this message and they want to go green. Mm. They're not perfect. <laughs> Americans or Europeans or Indians are not perfect either, mm. but they do quite good work now. What do you think are the biggest challenges that China is faced with on this road towards, you know, greener development while keeping the speed of its economic development at a reasonably high level because it has a huge population to employ, especially young, um, young graduates? What do you think are the, some of the challenges? Maybe the biggest challenge for China, but indeed also for US or Europe, that is to make a fair transition. Let's assume that I go to a coal worker in Shanxi or an industrial worker in, uh, in Liaoning or a farmer, old farmer in Henan, and I tell them, wow, look at this bright future of China. There will be any number of green jobs. But by the way, the jobs will come in Guangdong, Jiangsu or Shenzhen. Well, these guys may not be happy because it will be, not be the jobs in their place and for their people. So... The, having regional programs to make sure that Western China and Northern China, not just Zhejiang, Jiangsu and Guangdong benefit, is a very important issue for the government of China. Mm. And also on the individual level to make sure that people who are in the old industries are retrained and can see a future in the new ones. So basically you're talking about the uneven development of different regions in China. The lesser developed Northwest or Northeast are not as advantages in terms of green opportunity as the coastal areas is that absolutely but it's exactly the same issue in the united states or in india even in india the differences are much bigger but look there is a historical trend in china more and more of the economic output in china is coming south of the yangtze uh, historically maybe half was north half was south of the yangtze now more and more south of the Yangtze because the southern provinces, coastal provinces are developing faster. So to make an even and more even development mm. is a big challenge for any government. Of mm. course, I know this is high on the agenda for the Chinese government, but if you ask what is the biggest challenge, this is a big challenge because it's about fairness, but it's also because if you don't address it, development will be slower because then there will, there will be resistance. On the local level, um, what do you think they are, is their top priority at the moment when they are pursuing green development? Because they also have the KPI, mm -hmm. right, to clean up their water, to <coughs> clean up their air, but at the same time they also have the, the, the growth target to meet. So what is their number one top priority? I think the most important of all is to shift the thinking. Because in the past the thinking was, yes, that's good to be green, but it, it's costly, it's very expensive, mm -hmm. it can maybe be not afford it. And that's why most nations first uh, prioritized economic development, and then when they became rich, they started caring for nature. That happened in Europe, in America, in Japan, Korea, and, and, and finally in China. But now we have a very different opportunity, because solar and wind are not the cheapest energy in the world. If you move from coal to solar and wind, not only is it good for environment and for pollution, it also saves money. You get more money uh, for education and health if you base development uh, on solar and wind. So to get that shift in thinking, to see all the opportunities for going green and 
producing value. And of course, tourism is a very obvious sector for that. I mean, lots of tourists want to go to Sichuan to see the giant pandas. That is a big, big draw for tourism to Sichuan. But you need to make it happen in, in such a way that you create the jobs and protect nature. Africa, they're doing exactly the same. The number of gorillas in Rwanda is coming up. In India, they've doubled the number of tigers. The central Indian state of Madhya Pradesh just declared itself the tiger state of India. Well, they have a big heart for the environment, but also because they think tourism is a way to create more jobs and more prosperity for the state. Mm. So linking environment and ecology, that's the most important. This year will be the 10th anniversary of the announcement of the Belt and Road Initiative and mm. you are Vice President of the Green Belt and Road Coalition which is uh, a brainchild between you and um, the, uh, the Chinese authorities, national authorities. What exactly is this organization about and why so passionate about it? Mm. Um, I understand over the past five years since this uh, organization, has, this coalition was formed, 150 partners from 43 countries have joined this coalition. Mm. Belt and Road, as you know, was launched by President Xi Jinping in Kazakhstan 10 years ago. But in the beginning, it was a lot about old-style brown uh, industrial development and coal-based uh, economy. So then Li, uh, Li Ganzhi, who was then the Minister of Environment of China, and myself, we decided let's put together a coalition of partners who can help Belt and Road going more green. And this has been successful beyond expectations. Because when President Xi declared that China would stop all overseas coal investment, because immediately everyone is asking, well, China will not invest in coal, but maybe China can invest in solar or wind or high-speed rail uh, or green hydrogen or hydropower. And then you see this happening everywhere. And, of course, Belt and Road has created a number of green programs. Just recently, the Bandung-Jakarta Railroad in Indonesia was open. Last year, the Laos-China Railroad, which is linking Laos to the global network was open. In Africa, you have a number of, of fantastic railroads done by China, and even done in an environmentally friendly way with bypasses so that elephants and giraffes can go under mm -hmm. or over mm -hmm. uh, the uh, railroad. So yes, in the beginning, Belt and Road was not so green, but now it's a massive force for green development in the world. And this coalition we have formed, uh, help advise, give policy suggestions, and bring people together to help Belt and Road go green. Well, you make it sound very simple. It's like, okay, we want, to, we want it to be green, and tomorrow <laughs> it is green. I'm sure in reality it must be not so easy. What are some of the, you know, the, the difficult journeys that you have covered or that you can share with us, for instance, an example? Hmm. You know? Because at the end of the day, economic cooperation, you, you have to calculate the money first, you know, for anybody to survive in a market, right? The cap, the, how they calculate their cost and, and effect. Um, so how, share with us one example maybe you can think of that, uh, that went through this transformation mm -hmm. from being a, a, a brown project to a green project. Yeah, for very long there were numerous planned coal plants uh, between China and na different nations. There were planned coal plants in Bangladesh, in Pakistan, uh, in Kenya. And when China decided that we would stop for, uh, found, uh, funding this, uh, it happened more or less at the same time as the Kenyan government or the Bangladeshi government also said, but we do not want coal here either. 
So it was not just China. Then it would have been difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was also the same development in some of these nations. And yes, it's not simple. It's a lot of hard work. <laughs> a lot of good people have done hard work to convince others. And the group of people working with this Green and Belt and Road Coalition have worked with the NDRC in China, foreign ministry in China, because a number of banks and financial institutions. And they have, and they have helped convince people. But not everything is simple. As an example, I mean, there is a fantastic railroad from Mombasa to Nairobi in Kenya. Uh, if you go through Mombasa, it's a somewhat rundown, somewhat poor city. But then you come to this Chinese railroad, wow, it's an oasis, absolutely green, well-functioning, everything is clean. It's very different from most of the surroundings. But it's now a railroad from Mombasa to Nairobi. What would be even more beneficial for Africa if that could be taken further to Kampala, the capital of Uganda, to Kigali, the capital of Rwanda, that would have transformative impact on these countries. That is difficult to get it financed uh, because these are nations with an, which have debt, the, while the railroad will be fantastically profitable in the long run. In the short run, it may not generate so much money. Mm. So to get the package right for this to happen, it's a challenge, uh, but you cannot give up. You need to work on, on good projects to, to realize them. Where do you think is the biggest bottleneck for international green project cooperation at this moment? You, you just mentioned the bottleneck of financing, for instance, and how can, can that be resolved? I think maybe a, bi a big bottleneck is finance. Not that there is no enough finance. There is enormous amount of finance mm. in the world. We have, a, I mean, rich people have an abundance of money. And they don't really know how to use it. But to, to get the money to the more difficult places, to places where war and conflict, or African nations with, a, say, a very non-functioning state, or a lot of corruption, or difficulties of different sorts, that's difficult. The only way to do it, in my view, is to base investment on private investment, but use state and the World Bank and Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank as a leveraging tool. They guarantee for the investment, but private companies do the investment. Then you can get a lot more done uh, compared to say, just giving a, uh, a gift to someone. Do you have a sense that China, at least, um, is... Continue, continuously committed to promoting this kind of green development under the Belt and Road Initiative? Absolutely. I mean, there is no doubt after stopping coal investment, there will be massive green investment uh, on Belt and Road. And there is a number of criticisms in the West to Belt and Road, but I have to be frank, this is mainly due to jealousy <laughs> because there have been a number of Western initiatives which should kind of match Belt and Road. So far, very little have come out of it. And if someone in the West has criticisms to China, I mean, I, I tell, my, tell my friends there, well, please do better. <laughs> if you are jealous on China building a railroad or a solar park and, and you think you can do better, nothing will be better for the African governments than to get different uh, options. They can both get money or investment from China or from the US and Europe. That's what they would love to see. So stop criticizing China and please do better yourself. Um, in terms of uh, green development or environment or the transformation towards a more green economy, um, 
China has been criticized for not doing enough or not doing as much as it should or as it can as a major country. Mm -hmm. Having seen China this time up and close, what is your engagement of uh, the level of commitment and the level of efforts China has put in? But look, many people have the old impression of China. They have seen on TV all the pollution which was in Beijing and Tianjin 10 years ago, and they haven't really updated their knowledge. They don't understand how much this has changed. And they know that China is the biggest coal user in the world, which is true, but also China is by far the biggest in solar and wind and green hydrogen and whatever is the new green technology. So please open your eyes for the change in China. It's not that China cannot do more, of course it can and, and will, uh, but at this stage China's moved from being in the backseat of green development at a time where China had mainly a lot to learn from particularly Europe, now into China being in the driving seat. And very, very positively, not just China, the other Asian giant, India, is now moving very, very fast in the green direction. And when President Xi and Prime Minister Modi, they have some difference in some issues, on green development, they're exactly the same perspective. How to use the state as a way of driving uh, green business. And by the, I mean, Prime Minister Modi is opening new solar plants, new metros by the day. Uh, ten years ago, there was hardly any metros in, in, in India. Now 27 Indian cities are constructing metros. And India will very, very soon be the second biggest solar nation in the, in the world, next to China. So what is the pivot for the future or the key to winning the competition to be a better self for the future? Because everybody is talking about competition, rivalry uh, between the United States or China, or between China and India. But at the end of the day, what do you think decides who can do better for the benefit of mankind, of course? Of course, we need both competition and cooperation. Competition is good. Uh, business competition is good. When, see, say, BYD develop very good electric cars, it put a lot of pressure on Volkswagen and General Motors to do better. So that business competition is very good. But we also need to work together because all the major issues over time, peace in Ukraine or, or in the Middle East, uh, economic recovery after COVID, avoiding new pandemics or climate change and environment, will be much easier to resolve if we work together. So let's work together and inspire each other. Because when something, if there is some inspiring development in Europe, China can learn and vice versa. Sometimes we can learn even from smaller, faraway places. Uh, Rwanda in the central Africa, they are now world leading in uh, protecting gorillas, which is a very, very threatened uh, species, because they create a fantastic tourist industry mm. where people go and see the gorillas and they pay for it so that it's a great economy for the, for the local people. So there is an enormous uh, opportunity to learn from each other in the world. Thank you so much. We have to leave it there. Eric Solheim, Vice President of the Green Belt and Road Coalition, formerly Executive uh, Director of the UN Environment Programme. Thank you very much for having visited us uh, here in the studio. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, we come to the end of this special edition of The Point with me, Li Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Li Xin in Beijing. You've got the point.